you heard of uh, orphan trains. Orphan trains uh, were these trains, uh, imagine this in our 21st century context, trains that would run across the country filled with children who were orphans. And they would stop at each place along their distance, their travel along the country from New York City heading west, and they would stop. And the idea was that farmers who were looking and able to bring on extra farm help would bring in these orphans, care for them as their own children, and actually have extra help. Uh, 1830 in New York City, it was estimated that between 10,000 and 30,000 homeless children lived in the city. And so in 1853, Charles Loring Brace had the idea of sending these New York City orphans to rural farmhouses to help with the labor. And, and he's thinking, okay, we're going to send these kids across the country. We'll literally put them up for adoption. What, what that meant was you would stand them on the train platform and say, does anyone want these children for their home? And a farmer would raise their hand, and it was just simple as that. Between 1854 and 1929, the orphan trains ran, uh, relocating about 200,000 orphaned, abandoned, or abused, or homeless children. Tens of thousands, nameless children, put into homes through these orphan trains. Of course, it's not that different today, right? The estimates for 2018 was that some 690,000 children spent time in foster care. 690,000 children. And here's the truth behind, underneath all of this is that when you lose your parents, you become nameless. You become a number in a system, don't you? I was reading earlier this month about the mass grave established in New York City on Hearts Island. And what they're doing is all of these uh, people who are dying, and this has been happening since 2000, uh, people who are dying in uh, New York City or around that don't have any family or anything else, they're putting them into these potter's graves on Hearts Island. Some 850,000 people have been buried on Hearts Island since the year 2000. These are people who are nameless. They go unclaimed by any family. They uh, often are people who are too poor to pay for their own burial plots. And what we see in both of these situations is it just comes down to this question of, like, who sees these people? Who hears them? Who recognizes their need? Who speaks up on their behalf? Who does it? We recognize just this small problem when we consider all of the world's problems of all the people who face poverty, who face abandonment, who face orphanhood or whatever else it might be. We just ask this question, who speaks up on their behalf? And when we get to Genesis, what we see is we see this pattern of Genesis, this, this phrase that breaks up the book of Genesis. Uh, these are the generations of, here's uh, Noah's mom and dad, and here's Noah's children, and there's this uh, successive line of people. But this morning we're going to be introduced to someone who has no parents named. The nameless one of the book of Genesis, the one that we might pass by, the servant girl who nobody sees and nobody hears. And how does God interact with her? 
See, today we hear about somebody who's a nobody, somebody who's just a number, someone who's just easy for us just to gloss over, but we recognize that God sees and hears this woman, that God looks at this individual with care and concern. And he reminds us this morning, as our big idea is there for us in your bulletin or also on the screen behind me, that God hears the heartbroken And as we tell the story of Hagar, we're going to see that God hears and sees this woman that no one else sees or hears, that he uniquely cares and concerns for the things that trouble her, and he uniquely intervenes uh, for her. We're going to see this in three phases. Verse 1 through 6, we're going to see that Sarai implements a plan, just a disastrous plan, and we'll talk about that. Uh, But she implements this plan, and then in verses 7 through 14, Hagar kind of flees her presence and finds comfort from God. And then finally in verses 15 and 16, Hagar gives birth to her son, Ishmael. I want to dive in this morning in Genesis chapter 16 as we just kind of consider who hears the down and out, who hears those who are abandoned. We want to see something unique about the character of our God. So our first offering here this morning from verses 1 through 6, Sarai implements a plan. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 16 with me. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. We just recognize the massive dysfunction of this passage, okay? And we just want to dig in and just kind of understand it and see what's going on. Well, the first thing we see is that Sarai just develops this plan in verses 1 through 3, right? The, the passage gives us some facts here about Sarah. Now, we already know that Sarai's barren. We saw that way back in chapter 11 when we were introduced to Abram. But it reminds us here that Sarai still has not borne Abram any children, and what happens is that we, we see Sarah kind of develop this, Sarah kind of develop this plan. Uh, particularly, this, this plan is just ill-advised. Let's just note Sarah's theology here in verse 2. The, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, there's part of this that's good and correct line of thinking. As we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to see a number of women who are barren. They cannot have children. And almost all of the instances that are mentioned, God is the one who, who actually intervenes and opens their womb so they can have children. It's the way it w- works seemingly in the book of Genesis. I'm not saying that carries over to today. But that's exactly what happens, is that God is the one who is sovereign over Sarai's womb. So Sarai is correct in saying that the Lord has prevented her. But her theology comes through when she shows her plan to overcome her barrenness, right? She says to Abram in in verse 2, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children. Right? Here's my servant girl. She can bear you children for me. What's interesting to note here is that Sarah wants to move God's promises along. It's not that Sarah is acting out of faith. It's that Sarah is trying to speed up God's plan. Sarah doesn't lack faith in the promise. She wants to speed things up. She wants to hurry things along. Uh, She wants the promise in accordance with her timeline. 
And so she's kind of trying to, to push things along, to kind of help God out, right? I mean, Abram's not getting any younger. At the end of this passage, we're going to find out he's 86 years old. That means that Sarai herself is probably around 75 to 76 years old. Uh, these things aren't really going anywhere. And so Sarah's kind of inserting herself into the process. Now, note Abram's reaction in verse 2. Abram listened. Oh, excuse me. Let's go back for a second. I want to look at verse 3 and understand exactly how the Scriptures view this in verse 3. See, verse 3 says this. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Do you see what the author's doing here? It's not like he's presenting new information. He's highlighting the information we already know. This might be the most condemning statement of polygamy that we find in the book of Genesis. Uh, there was this statement given to Lamech back in chapter 4 about Lamech was just this wicked individual. He took multiple wives, and he said to his wives, thus and thus, and it's not a good scene. But this is also condemning Abram and Sarai's actions, saying Abram's wife gave him another woman, her servant, as an additional wife. And the, the unstated thing about that is it's not a good thing. See, we know that this plan is ill-advised because of the way the author states these statements. Now, look at Abram's reaction in verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar? If we were to kind of turn pages back to chapter 3, verse 17, what we would find is God said to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, See, it's the exact same wording that God is using here about Abram's action. And notice, too, that, that Sarah takes her servant and gives it to Abram, just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam. There's this direct connection that the author is wanting us to see back to the Garden of Eden and to the fall of mankind. See, this scene recalls the fall of Adam and Eve. And the author isn't shy about saying this is just a really bad idea. And as you can imagine, this really bad idea is about to have some really bad consequences. Look at verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read these again, verse 4 through 6. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That's Sarah. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled. See, verse 4 tells us that Hagar conceived. She becomes pregnant. And she looks at contempt, with contempt, at her mistress, Sarai. What does that mean? It means that she feels superior. If you were to kind of go back in time and kind of go back to this time, and even in ancient cultures at large, uh, being barren was particularly shameful. Uh, and so Sarai is, is looking with contempt, or is, excuse me, Hagar is looking with contempt at Sarai because she was not able to bear Abram children like she was. And Sarai's had her fill of it. In verse 5, she turns to Abram. She doesn't go and deal with Hagar. She goes and deals with Abram. In verse 5, she says, May the wrong done to me be on you. 
I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw uh, that she had conceived, she looked on me with content. May the Lord judge between me and you. And as if that doesn't get more dysfunctional, Abram responds sinfully too, doesn't he? He looks back at her and says, she's your servant. Treat her as you will. And there's just this mess that's here uh, from Sarah and Abram's faithlessness. So what happens, the upshot of this text in verse 6 is that Hagar takes off. She leaves so that Sarai has no hope of children. Abram has lost a child, and Hagar is lost in the wilderness. See, seeking to speed up the promise of God, it leads to all kinds of difficulty, doesn't it? When we seek to kind of insert ourselves into the promise of God, it just kind of messes things up. We can't grease the wheels for God to speed up his timing. I mean, think about it. God has promised Abram four things. He's promised him, if we go back to chapter 12, people, remember, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to give you this land in chapter 12. There's a place. There's protection. Anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. And those who bless you, I'm going to bless. And then there's this program that God has for them too. It's like, hey, I'm going to bless the nations through you. So there's this fourfold promise that's brought to Abram. But Abram and Sarah are fixated on one particular aspect, that they would have a people, that they would have an heir. And they're so focused and myopic, they are just desperate for a child. But in the midst of seeking hard after God's promises, they've lost the most precious thing, God himself. You see, God's greatest gift is, is not the promise itself. For us, the greatest gift of the New Testament is not eternal life or even the forgiveness of sin. The greatest gift is reunion and restoration with the God of the universe. John Piper says this. He says, The gospel of Christ proclaims the news that he has purchased by his death 10,000 blessings for his bride. But none of these gifts will lead to final joy if they have not first led to God. See, our impatience with God's promises wreak havoc on our world, right? Isn't that what's happening here? Uh, Hagar bears the weight of Sarai's impatience. All of Abram and Sarai's baggage ends up on the shoulders of Hagar. There's nothing more difficult for the world to process than godless Christians these are Christians who desire the promises of God's kingdom but have forgotten the sweetness of God's presence himself. They sprint toward the morality of the kingdom. They tell you about all of the promises of God, but in the end we find them prayerless, needless, self-sufficient people. There's no need that transcends them or their capabilities. There's no uh, mystery to their life. There's no uh, thing that drives them consistently to prayer and to their knees before the Lord. These are godless Christians. And I find myself at times in these patterns where I always have a solution right at the tip of my tongue where I'm not driven to this neediness before my God. I'm afraid that Abram and Sarah had found what they thought was a solution that didn't make them needy before their God. You know, the, it, the truth is that there's going to be 20 years in Abram's life between when God promised him a child and when Isaac is born. 
The truth is that there's 20 years between Joseph, when Joseph has a dream about ruling over his brothers and the end of the book of Genesis when he finds himself second in command in, in Egypt. Sometimes God's timing is different than ours, isn't it? Sometimes we have to wait, we have to trust, we have to go on our knees before our God and say, God, I need right now. I am not self-sufficient. I don't have a plan that's going to work these things out. I need to trust in your hand and your promises. Now, what the rest of this passage is going to do is is compare for us the self-sufficient plan of Sarai and Abram and provide a foil with the life of Hagar. And at the end, we're going to see who the Lord hears. We're going to know more about God himself, his character, than we will about any of these characters, Sarai or Abram or Hagar. We're going to see God's character put on display for us. So look at chapter 16, verses 7 through 14. We're going to find that Hagar flees and finds comfort from the Lord. The angel of the Lord found her, verse 7, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. She's going back to Egypt. She's traveling back to her homeland. In verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Cotton Eye Joe. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. See, Hagar flees. And in verses 7 through 9, interestingly enough, God directs Hagar back to Sarai. Did you notice that? Well, first, let's talk about this angel of the Lord. In verses 7 and 9 and 10, we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord. But verse 13 clues us in to who we're talking about because Hagar looks and says, I've seen the Lord. We're talking about a a, a theophany, a picture of God himself, that God is speaking to Hagar directly. And God is directing her to go back to her mistress. In verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. It might be one thing to go back and can just keep the same attitude that you had before. But no, God is telling Hagar, go back and submit. Humble yourself to her. Do not hold your pregnancy against her as you have been doing. Do not look with contempt upon Sarai. God gives the reason in verses 10 and 12. Look through uh, verses 10 through 12 with me. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Notice that God gives Hagar one of the promises that he's also given to Abram, right? Surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered for the multitude. The the thing that God promised Abram in chapter 12, he's also promising to Hagar's descendant, Ishmael. And God gives even more details in verses 11 to 12. This child is going to be a son. You're going to have a boy. He's going to be named Ishmael, verse 11. He's going to be, and I quote, a wild donkey of a man. That's probably why we don't find many Ishmaels around, right? Wild donkey of a man. What does that mean? It means that he's obstinate, that he's opposed to everyone, that he's not to be harnessed or or domesticated. 
that he's going to have conflict with everyone around him, but he's going to be the leader of this great nation. And so Hagar responds in verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well shall be called Ber Lahai Roy. It's between Kadesh and Berea, or Bered. Hagar responds. It's interesting to note all the names that she uses here. The name Ishmael, it means God hears. And so God directs Hagar to name him Ishmael, saying God's heard. Or actually, she tells, he tells her that that's what her, his name is going to be. And then she names this well, Ber Lahai Roy. And that means the well of the living one who sees me. See, while Hagar was manipulated by Sarah and dismissed by Abram, she is seen and heard by the living God of the universe. But it's not it. God also is seen by Hagar. Isn't that what she says in in verse 13? Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. I've seen the one who's looking at me. There's this kind of duality to it, this reciprocal nature that she's saying, God sees me and I've seen him. Hagar is both seen and seeing. She has seen this theophany and she has lived. This is all just a reminder to us that well, God's people might not be perfect. I mean, Sarai's and Abram's, we mess up. God is always godly. God's always looking and seeing and interacting with love and generosity. See, Hagar was as down and out as you could be, right? I mean, she's, she's a servant to this mistress who's received a promise from God. Literally the only people on the face of the earth that bear this distinct relationship, and she's not a part of that promise. She is a female which is incredibly hard in her time. She is a foreigner. She doesn't come from the people that her mistress and her uh, and Abram come from. She is down and out as much as anyone could ever assume to be. But the God of the universe sees and hears Hagar. He hears her. He, he sees her plight and he responds to her. God's not so busy with his program with Abram and Sarai that he's kind of just tuned everything else out. He has locked himself and he sees. I was reading in the Old Testament and there's this phrase in 2 Chronicles 26 where God says that his eyes are sweeping about to and fro over the earth that he might see how he can bless the righteous. Let's just pause and consider that God sees us. And it's not just the Hagars who are down and out. You and I, in our sinfulness, deserved the wrath of God. As Ephesians 2 says, we were alienated from God, without God, without hope in the world. But when Christ came, he bore our sinfulness at the cross. God inserted himself on our behalf. He saw our plight. He saw our hardship. And he inserted himself for us because he saw our distance from him. 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. As Romans chapter 5 says, God sees us in the midst of our sin and pursues us. When I was in college, I stumbled upon this, this, uh, this poem, and it's on the screen here. It's from an anonymous author. It's just entitled The Stairs. I always promised myself I'd never be a pastor who read poems, and yet here I am, right? O long and dark the stairs I trod, with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, not noting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. And now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair, and that same stair where I afraid faltered and fell and lay dismayed, and lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. Do you see that this morning? Do you have a a very real sense that God's not just included you in his mass redemption, that he has particularly redeemed you from your history of sin and shame? As our text goes on, we end with a boy, verses 15 through 16. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Look what it says. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's a boy, right? Congratulations. Break out the cigars. Everybody's happy. Abram and Sarah got their child. And what's his name? It's Ishmael, right? Just like God had promised Hagar. Now we just want to stop and we just want to consider for a second what that name sounds like in Abram's ears and what it sounds like in Hagar's ears. Hagar has this promise from God that when she hears the name Ishmael, which means God hears, she remembers a particular scenario in which God had shown himself faithful. But when Abram hears the name Ishmael, God hears, how does he think about that? As he's manipulated, connived his way into forcing the promise to become true. You know, next week when we're in chapter 17, Abram is just going to plead before God to say, couldn't Ishmael be this heir? Couldn't Ishmael be acceptable before you? But God wants to bring about something that's just solely based upon faith. See, what do we do with all of this? I kind of step back and we see we've got Abram and Sarai and they've messed up and, and Hagar, she's not faultless either, but she's got a lot of suffering on her plate, a lot of things that she didn't deserve. How do we kind of take inventory of this and how do we kind of uh, navigate our way through this story? It's a reminder this morning that God exalts the lowly, doesn't he? God takes those that are down and out, far away from his presence, and he, he lifts up their state. We saw this when we were in the book of Luke, when, when Mary is first announced as pregnant and the angel comes to her, she responds and she gives this magnificat in, in Luke chapter 1. And she says that God has considered the lowly state of his servant and that he's exalted her. 
God lifts Hagar's eyes away from her present circumstance and toward her future. God's promise changes our fortune. God doesn't eradicate our difficulties. God chooses to change our view of our circumstances with the promise of something better. It's what he did for Mary in Luke chapter 1. It's what he's done for Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. It's what he did for the disciples. I was at a a training a few years back for uh, church planning, and uh, I'm going to present a... um, an illustration here uh, from them. I've stolen it. Like Picasso said, good artists borrow, great artists steal. I'm going to steal something. No bones about it. This is straight from Tim Keller. And I want to present to you two individuals. There's Bob. Bob is, man, he's the, the guy at the workplace, right? He's upwardly mobile. He's got this great 401k. His, his position in his company is secure. Everybody loves Bob. Bob is reliable. He's headed somewhere. Everybody wants to be connected to Bob. Jim, on the other hand, is stuck in a dead-end job. Low salary, no savings. Jim's, Jim's struggling. And we might consider, go on to the next slide here, Logan. We might Consider that Bob is tempted to just look down upon Jim. If, if, if everything is hanging upon the balance of, of this line of success, Bob is going to look down upon Jim and say, do better. And, and Jim is going to look up to the Bobs of this world. Why? Because everything, go ahead to the next slide, everything hinges upon the fulcrum of money, doesn't it? If we just kind of boil everything down to this social interaction, everything kind of hinges upon this issue. And if we were to kind of insert Sarai and Hagar into this situation, we would say Sarai's on the low end of the totem pole because she's barren, and Hagar's on the top end because she was able to have a child. But in the end, the gospel speaks something different to us. We might also insert another uh, qualification. What if Bob has no family? Bob has no wife, no kids, whatever else. And and Jim happens to have a great family life. We might insert anything else. What about friendships or whatever? All of these ways in which we assess the quality and value of our life, it hinges upon these fulcrums. But the gospel speaks differently to us. See, if when we put the cross at the center of our relationships, it keeps all of us balanced and on the same footing. How does that happen? Well, there's two statements Tim Keller gives us. He says, I'm more sinful than I ever knew, and I'm more loved than I ever thought possible. And when we hold both of those promises to be true, the bobs of this world who are knocking it out of the park, they have to say, I'm more sinful than I ever knew. And the gyms of this world who who are feeling down and out, who are feeling left behind, they're saying, I'm more loved than I ever thought possible. The promise of God has changed my station in life so that now I can engage my circumstances with faith and with hope. See, this morning, the gospel has changed everything for us. I said, that's a great illustration. What about about the Bible? Consider Luke 19. Zacchaeus, you know, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He's this short guy. And it's not just that he's short, he's also sinful, right? Because he's a tax collector, which is like a turncoat, because you're like selling out your own people to make money, and you're making lots of money, by the way. So Zacchaeus is just making money hand over fist because he's ripping off all of his cousins and all of his relatives who are of this Jewish nation. 
And he comes and he wants to see Jesus. So he climbs up into the sycamore tree. And Jesus is passing by. And Jesus stops and calls to Zacchaeus. And I'm going to your house and we're going to have a meal. Well, see, the upshot of this whole story is that Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and he says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That God engages us in our lostness. That he's come to bring salvation to us, to change the station of our life, to change our, our, our former identities and give us this new identity in his saving work. See, the truth is that no matter what your position in life may be, you are not down and out if you have faith in Christ. Listen, you might not uh, get all of the the financial well-being that you want. You might not even have three square meals in front of you a day. But your eternity is secure if you have faith in Christ. When Jesus shows up in Matthew, his first major sermon that he gives in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount... He starts it off with these series of statements pronouncing the blessing upon those who were formerly down and out. And so he says in Matthew 5, 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Formerly, if you were poor in spirit, that's not a good thing. But now, if, if you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, excuse me. See, worldly perspective no longer defines the Christian. You and I are no longer defined by our income. We're no longer defined by our IQ. We're no longer defined by our looks, by our friends, our social standing, our past, our future, our present. No matter what it is, you are not defined by anything else, any standard of this world. Now, if you are in Christ, your eternity is secure so that that cannot be stripped from you. God exalts those who are humble and we're still waiting for that to happen. See, as we look at the story of Hagar and Sarai and Abram, we might see that there's all kinds of different fulcrums upon which they assess themselves. But in the end, it's the promise of God that matters, isn't it? See, the only thing that now defines your prospects in life is your standing with God through the resurrected work of Jesus Christ. praying that we might be a people that buy into that identity. That we might be a people who know that God sees and hears us. You know, you read through the Psalms. The psalmist is saying, listen to my voice. Why do my enemies persecute me? I mean, just read Psalms 5 through 15 and see how many times the psalmist is going to bring up the words enemy Listen, he's calling out constantly to be heard from God. And the truth is this morning, we know that God hears us in our plight. We know that God hears us in our brokenness because he has given us Christ. I want to pray this morning that God makes us a people who trust in the work of Christ first and foremost. And that we aren't people who are defined by anything else other than the promise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would give us deep hope. Deep hope in the promise that you've given us in Christ that, Lord, someday we will be, we'll be with you. 
how you have cast our sins as far as east is from west through the death and resurrection of your son. Lord, help us to grab on to that truth and to hold it tightly. Make us a people who trust in you and delight in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.